The news and opinions expressed on Occupy Radio may not necessarily reflect the views of KWVA Eugene, the University of Oregon, or the Associated Students of the University of Oregon. From KWVA in Eugene and the Pacifica Network, this is Occupy Radio covering stories of resilience and resistance, integrating activism into our everyday lives. A lot of Americans often wonder, why are the two parties actually so similar to each other? And the answer is that the same small group of people, very moneyed people, basically determine who the candidates are going to be in those parties. So what Citizens United has done is amplified wealth power in the United States. This is the end of a nearly four-year run of Occupy Radio Occupiers, and this week, Rivera and I are looking back at some of the best shows from our two years of sharing the mic. That's right. Oligarchy, wealth, debt, basic income, and constructive program. A resident's bill of rights and our favorite Marxist, Richard Wolff. Not to mention a little bit of fun with one half of the Yes Men. You should find something to spark your interest on this week's Occupy Radio. Welcome to all of our listeners far and wide scattered throughout the U.S. and abroad. This is Rivera Sun. I'm your co-host of Occupy Radio, and we're recording with David Getchy, Sierra Lupe. Howdy. How are you doing, Getch? Well, I'm doing well, and I'm a little early on my cue, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight we're recording live a really very special show for Occupy Radio. We're winding down into the closing era of recording these shows for four years has it been getch almost almost uh march of 2012 was the beginning so it's it's three and three quarters years probably Yes, and we're headed off into new radio recording and broadcasting territory in the new year. But this week, we have a very special show for you. Getting back over a bunch of our best ofs over the two years that we've shared, Rivera, you and I. And uh, I think uh, we've, you've, we've made some good choices for t- uh, this week. Well, we've been digging deep into the archives. We've been listening to old shows for the entire week, picking out the very best clips. And uh, I'm pretty excited. We've been searching for bright ideas, the kind of things that you can stick in your back pocket, not just for a rainy day, but for the troubled times that we live in. Some very smart and clever things, some very practical and applicable things. Righto, righto. And uh, some things that are heavily uh, influenced by money, I'm noticing this week. This is kind of a, it's not solely about money, but there's a whole lot of money going on in the clips we're sharing this week. 
Well, this is Occupy Radio, and you are giving them a little bit of a teaser, Getch, that uh-huh. uh, we're going to take a Christmas conspiracy show break next week. And then for our finding, final closing Occupy Radio show, we have some tricks up our sleeve, including some of the greatest hits of Occupy Radio. And we'll start the clips this week with Jeffrey Winters. That's Dr. Jeffrey Winters of Northwestern University. He is a professor there, the director of the Equality Development and Globalization Studies Program. And we spoke with Ben Page, who put out the uh, oligarchy study uh, last year. And when we were done talking with him, he said, you guys have got to talk with Jeffrey Winters. He knows oligarchy. And what do you say, Rivera? Do you want to just go right in and uh, play our play our intro, our interview with Jeffrey? Oh, definitely. Let's, it's one for the record. Let's do it. People think of democracy and oligarchy as being sort of what political scientists, anyway, say are zero sum concepts. That is, as democracy increases, oligarchy has to decrease, and as oligarchy increases democracy has to decrease. And in fact, I don't think that's the case. And here's why. The reason we have oligarchy is not because we have a deficit of democracy. It's actually because we have a different kind of power resource in play than just participation and and the formal democratic side. So what I'm saying is the source of oligarchy is concentrated wealth. Any society that is going to be as stratified as the United States is, is going to have oligarchy. It's necessarily going to be there. And in fact, the United States has been moving in that direction of not only concentrating wealth in ever fewer hands, but opening up the utility of that wealth to be expressed politically. So oligarchy has existed whether there has been democracy or whether there has not been democracy. And you may ask, well, has there ever not been oligarchy? And the answer to that is yes, only where there has not been extreme concentration of wealth. So one of the byproducts of having tremendous stratification in society is you create oligarchic power. The Supreme Court, which, by the way, historically has very much sided with oligarchs, and I'll even go a step further, it was designed by the founders to protect wealth and individual rights, including the individual right to wealth. It was designed to actually block democratic voices from being able to do things like restrain wealth or possibly even redistribute wealth. I'm not exaggerating to say that that was central in the minds of the designers of this structure. And so the Supreme Court, true to its design, steps in whenever democracies and large numbers of people say things like, we don't want you to be able to distort our democratic process with a massive inflow of money power to be able to set the agenda for what gets on the agenda for the country, to be able to determine the candidates that we ultimately get to choose between. So a lot of Americans often wonder, why are the two parties actually so similar to each other? And the answer is that the same small group of people 
very moneyed people basically determine who the candidates are going to be. Well, there's a kind of primary which is prior to the open primary when we vote. And some people have referred to this as a wealth primary. And the wealth primary occurs before any other kind of election occurs in the United States. And sometimes we think of it as, it used to be called the $1,000 a plate dinner. It's now a $35,000 a plate dinner. And before you can become viable in the United States, in our electoral system, you have to basically be able to either have enough money yourself to be able to run a campaign, or you need to be able to assemble enough people who have a tremendous amount of money who are going to fund you. Well, all of that happens off the political radar screen in the United States. And everybody gets canceled out of the political system who cannot raise enough money. Then, after basically a wealth primary has screened all the candidates and made them safe for wealthy people, then the vote is opened up to the average citizen to be able to participate. In ancient Rome, which was a slave society where the average person either was a landless peasant or was a slave, the top 500 oligarchs in Rome were 10,000 times as wealthy as the average person who was Roman. Okay? Big number, 10,000 times. In the United States, this is in terms of wealth, in the United States, it is at least 20,000 times if we include someone's home in that calculation. And it is 40,000 times if we only look at financial wealth that the average person has versus the financial wealth of people on the top. So what we are talking about is a society in America today which is between two and four times the concentration of wealth that the authoritarian system of Rome had in ancient times. And then you, then you ask that next question, Getch, which is how much of that wealth can be converted into the kind of wealth power, political outcomes, wealth defense outcomes that I was just describing a moment ago. And it turns out that the average citizen, which is one person, one vote, which is a radically equal concept, the average citizen has nothing like the voice and power that an ultra-wealthy person has in the United States, where it's 40,000 to one. Well, you know, Getch, when I'm listening to Jeffrey Winters talk about all that, it really brings up that what do we do as people when we don't have power, we don't have money, we organize. And that brings us to our next guest, uh, Tomas Rivera with the Chainbreaker Collective out of Santa Fe with the Residence Bill of Rights, talking about how to use people power to get rights for residents. And let's give them a listen. Right. So Santa Fe has some of the highest um, rents in the state by far, and housing. we really have a housing crisis here in Santa Fe. So um, what our members decided to do was to create what we call a, a Residence Bill of Rights, and it's a very comprehensive document that says how we believe Santa Fe should grow as a city, what policies we should have as far as city planning and for housing as well. And this, the resolution that you're referring to that passed just a, a couple uh, weeks, a few weeks ago, uh, is a mirror legislation for that. So it has our elected officials saying that they hold these values um, to, you know, they hold the values of the Residence Bill of Rights close to them, and that that's how they want to make legislation for housing in Santa Fe. So we think it's really going to be groundbreaking. Um, it can kind of go 
so many different directions right now. Uh, it talks about, you know, environmental uh, justice. It talks about where resources are placed in the city as far as parks and recreation centers and healthy food options. Um, so it talks about equity in those terms. And it also talks about affordability as far as raising rents and that kind of thing as well. So this is a resolution. It doesn't have the, the legal piece yet that we want to get to, but it opens the door for all of that stuff. I did want to ask you a little bit about a trend that I see across the country um, and how it plays out in Santa Fe, which is that I do see a lot of city and county, and we know this on the state and the federal level, uh, mm-hmm. the government's paying a lot of attention to jobs and economic concerns and weighing legislation based almost primarily or solely on those concerns without any countervailing sort of uh, social, cultural, or quality of living uh, standards being added into the How does this uh, Residence Bill of Rights and those resolutions supporting that play out in terms of those dynamics? So the Residence Bill of Rights, we, we have written it, and it was a very uh, very democratic process. You know, we did, it was a year-long process of knocking on doors, having house meetings, meeting with members, and also working in, in uh, tandem with national coalitions. Um, we worked with an organization called Right to the City, which we are a member of, that uh, we worked very closely on this. And what we came up with was basically five pillars that we believe need to be need to be thought of in order to make housing truly not just affordable in the sense that you're talking about and that's often talked about that somebody can live there but it's sustainable in a way that it contributes to someone's quality of life that it uh, contributes to planetary health and all of that and that you know the first pillar is affordability and to, and under affordability is to thinking about affordability in terms of well what does it mean if somebody can afford to pay their rent but then they are you know there's no mass transit in the area and they live many miles away from where they work so they're forced to drive a car that car dependency winds up taking a lot of a lot of working families income away as well so we want to contri- kind of have a holistic view to affordability in that way and then quality, sustainable, and sustainability and health is the next aspect of that. And again, that, that talks about planetary health, community health, individual health. Those are things like access to um, healthy food options, recreation areas, parks, sidewalks, um, mass transit again. Uh, transportation is, we have to talk about transportation when we're talking about housing and city planning because uh, the two go hand in hand. The next pillar is accessibility, fairness, and equity. And that's where we're talking a lot about um, kind of our equity issues and our, and our racial justice issues that we were talking about. That, you know, the city should really invest resources in, in all ne- neighborhoods equally. And we see, you know, wealthy, wider neighborhoods getting a lot of resources at the expense of low-income neighborhoods of color. And uh, that, that, that should not continue if we want to have a, a real viable just city. And um, the next pillar is sustainability, permanence, and protection from displacement. That, again, is trying to counter some of the gentrification issues that we're dealing with. Um, And finally, community control. We believe that the people who live in the neighborhood should have the right to decide how and when it develops on their own terms. Um, And those are things like eventually we'd like to see land trusts and that kind of that kind of thing down the road. Um, so again, it's very comprehensive, and we know that this bill, this resolution is exciting to us because it's great for Santa Fe. But like you said, these are issues that are happening around the country, and, and doing this resolution in the way that we did can be a replicable model for any city around the country, and they can take, with, take it and run with it. 
Well, Getch, Tomas Rivera's commentary put me in mind of Constructive Program, which is something that we got to interview um, Michael Nagler and Stephanie Van Hook of the Meta Center for Nonviolence about. Now, the Meta Center really is one of the foremost um, organizations in the United States for teaching and educating and training people in developing constructive programs. So what do you say we go listen to them? Constructive program was a term that uh, Mahatma Gandhi gave to his platform of 18 programs that he uh, put together to basically rebuild India's society from the bottom up and at the same time make it invincible as far as uh, the British Raj was concerned. So since then, uh, and of course he, he gave it the British spelling, program A-M-M-E, since then, people use the term more generally to mean a constructive component of a nonviolent campaign. And it doesn't necessarily have to be so broad spectrum. But uh, I think in order to really be constructive program and not just some, pra- some constructive activities, it has to have the capacity to really shake the regime. So, and there are many things to be said in favor of constructor program, but maybe that would be enough for us to get it rolling. What might a few very practical examples, perhaps from Gandhi's work, uh, be that just to give people a, a, a tangible idea of what what these are? Well. You know, it's a constructive program is essential to understanding Gandhi. Um, When you see him wearing, you know, white clothing, it's called khadi or the cotton clothing, and you see him in this Time magazine, you know, cover wearing the, um, or sitting in front of the spinning wheel with his newspaper and so forth. What's going on there? Is this just some man from India who is, happens to be leading a campaign, or is he using the traditional culture in a way that helps them to build momentum for a movement of self-sufficiency? That in itself, by showing that we're self-sufficient, is going to show that we're not dependent on what you want to give us. So, yes, the spinning wheel was a huge part of Gandhi's campaign, and it's hard to um, understand the Indian campaign without understanding spinning, which was essentially, you know, the the East Indian Company coming in and exploiting the country for all of their resources and taking their cotton and sending it to England to get processed and selling it back to them as clothing, which nobody can afford, right? So that's that's one kind of way of understanding constructive programming Gandhi's day. But he had a whole book um, of, you know, 20 programs, 18 programs, but, you know, they, the list goes on and on because constructive program comes from that creative energy that nonviolence actually is, and it's getting to that that real idea that we can use the, the um, logical next step in making nonviolent energy arise out of anger and anything else that's going on inside of us is that we can direct it into constructive channels before I, you know, push at you and tell you I don't like you. I can say, tell you what I really like about what's going on here and why I'm more committed to this than I am to the system that you've built for me. And, you know, and, and within Occupy, we're on Occupy Radio, right? Um, Strike That was an, a wonderful example of constructive program coming into the discussion, um, you know, let's buy up debt, let's buy up medical debt of all things, you know, and challenge the, you know, military pharma 
um, industrial complex. And at the same time, this debt, you know, that is being held over the heads of so many Americans, um, let's challenge that and let's expose it for what it is, that it doesn't need to be there. So, you know, it's, you know, Gandhi showed that it can be very much a part of the culture that we're a part of and um, that it can be adapted. And I think what they we saw in Occupy and what we see in movements all around the world today is that they can be adapted for um, specific contexts as well. Well, constructive program is just endless. Uh, we'd love to ask Stephanie and Michael, what is the constructive program for the United States? And there's there's no quick and easy answer. There's so many places that we can do this work. One of them, as she mentioned, was strike debt, which is actually a subject that we've covered quite a bit on Occupy Radio. It was actually one of our biggest hits, I think, for 2015, our strike debt interview with Laura Hanna about the Corinthian 15, which I believe has expanded to quite a much larger number than that. But we'll start with Laura Hanna explaining uh, the strike debt philosophy. So I'll start with a saying, uh, which is, if you owe the bank $1,000, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank a trillion dollars, you own the bank. Together, we own the bank, right? So the Debt Collective is a platform to organize debtors, and you can think about it as a kind of 21st century debtors union. Um, we may change the kinds of work or the jobs that we do over the course of our lives, or we may be unemployed, but our debts follow us everywhere we go. So the platform is really like a factory floor, and our tactics that we would like to develop could include something like collective bargaining, walkouts, and strikes, etc. But the basic idea is that alone, our debts overwhelm us, but together, they make us strong. They make us powerful. Student debt right now across the country, we're in about, we're, we're coming up on $1.3 trillion of student debt. So that's really a bubble of sorts, right? And um, the idea is that in that space, something will need to change. And so what are the terms? And we don't know, but we're here to sort of develop a collective strategy with uh, student debtors across the country and work towards what we would like to see. And, of course, us at the Debt Collective would love to see uh, tuition-free education for public universities four-year across the board. We like to think about, well, what would have happened if the Debt Collective as an organization could have existed before the housing crisis? How might that have changed those outcomes? And, of course, we don't know because it wasn't there, but we think it's worth a try. Um, And, you know, in terms of whether that's a realistic goal or not, Tuition-free education isn't a utopian concept. Plenty of other countries have tuition-free education. It's just a matter of national priorities. And now that Obama is talking about funding two-year uh, tuition-free education, at least city colleges, I think we're, it's, we're changing what seems possible. So for us, we've created a white paper called How Far to Free, which shows how we can free up approximately $15 billion more per year than we're currently spending and just redirect that money that's being wasted on student loan subsidies and tax exemptions, et cetera, and directly fund education. We have a white paper that's called How Far to Free. Uh, you can find it on strikedebt.org. We'll also be posting on Debt Collective. And it describes how public two- and four-year college and university in the United States can be tuition-free for approximately $15 billion more than we're currently spending. And we simply need to redirect that money that's being wasted on student loan subsidies and other subsidies that I'll describe later in the show, tax exemptions for for for-profits, et cetera, and directly route that money into funding education. 
We are encouraging people to sign up and enter the amount of debt that they have at debtcollective.org so that we can continue to build numbers um, as we aggregate that, you know, that data that people enter. We can have a better understanding of who's interested in working and what kinds of debt they have. So we're headed in this direction. Right now we've put up um, a, a, like a, I'm describing it as a container on the site for people who have Navient as their servicer, and Navient's just one half of what was Sally Mae. So there are a lot of people who have signed up. And, you know, to your, to your question about whether people can sign up who aren't debtors, I would say that everybody is actually a debtor, even if you don't have personal debt, because people are dealing with with uh, privatization in the municipal sector. Municipal debt is large and huge, and that's another area that we would love to focus in. So, yes, there's sign-up potential for people who don't have personal debt, and then we'll have to figure out where we go from, from there. But for right now, all of our, all of our energy is Corinthian. And that was Laura Hanna talking about strike debt, and she mentioned the Corinthian private college system and their fight against them. So let's hear about Corinthian. Yeah, so our, our current pilot project is um, called the Corinthian Collective, and we have a group of strikers, the Corinthian 15, who started a, a strike, and they are victims of the for-profit sector. So they're demanding a full discharge of their debts, federal and private. Um, and we are helping and providing services and doing that work to make sure that they, they get a full discharge. Was They lied about job placement stats, right? They had incredibly aggressive recruiting tactics. Uh, according, the CFPB filed a lawsuit against Genesis, its private lender, and there's an investigation going, and according to its own internal documents, it described the folks that they were preying upon as composed of isolated, impatient individuals with low self-esteem who had few people in their lives who care about them, who are stuck and unable to see and plan well for the future. So they spent a huge amount on um, telemarketing campaigns, television ads, daytime shows, et cetera. Their aggressive recruiting tactics focused on the demographic of families that made less than 10,000 a year often individuals who had never gone to college before, so they didn't really have an understanding of what to look out for or, you know, maybe what would be a better or worse school. At the time, I was, say, 33 at the time when I went. Holly Chaffee, one of the original Corinthian 15. You know, I should have known better of all these things, but they were good at what they were doing. Because, you know, when I would tell them, you know, hey, I'm going to go home and think about it. No, 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 you know, kind of thing. It was one of those things, you know, we would say we would think about it, go home and think about it, you know. They would give us, you know, another line. Pretty much they're there to help you sign papers and then you don't even see them again. You know, they were supposed to, you know, out the whole time that you're there at school, they're supposed to check on you to see how you're doing, you know, you need anything. No, they didn't even do that. That was Holly Chaffee of the original Corinthian 15. And, Rivera, you uh, you wrangled us up some uh, Chuck Collins for the next clip. Uh, he's a two-time visitor during 2015. That's right. He's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, which also advocates another strategy for funding debt-free education, but it involves taxing the very wealthy. Let's hear from Chuck Collins about one of their taxation strategies, perhaps the most radical one. 
what, what Thomas Piketty said is we're kind of left alone. If we just allow this sort of uh, runaway wealth cycle to continue, we basically will have a, a society governed by a hereditary aristocracy, meaning the sons and daughters of Facebook and Microsoft and you know, uh, Google will become the ruling classes that will be a society ruled by wealth. Uh, and that left alone, that's where this happens. So we're what we're documenting in this concentrated wealth is just sort of this is the machinery now or the the cycle. Um, so uh, Piketty's proposal was a was a global wealth tax. He believes that that's the intervention that would actually reverse this. Uh, and we agree. You know, it has to be global because wealth is is um, global and it's uh, you know quickly escaping national regulation and taxation. Um, we believe, you know, that that you can do things like raise the minimum wage, you can institute campaign finance reform, but if you really want to reverse this wealth concentration cycle, uh, you need to tax wealth at the top. And, and um, I mean, here's a radical proposition. Why wouldn't we institute a 100% tax on wealth over a billion dollars? Let's start with that. Um, and can make a fairly good argument for taxing it. But, you know, if you've got a, a billion dollars, anything above that belongs to society, the society that helped create the fertile ground that made that wealth possible. And let's use that, let's deploy that wealth uh, to expand the commonwealth, to expand uh, the infrastructure, and let's use some of that wealth to address uh, the climate crisis and and help us with a transition to a post-fossil fuel economy. Um, that, you know, even if we were to levy that, that would generate $2.3 trillion of revenue if, if you just levied that tax. Uh, that's, you know, a lot of money, and it would still allow, the, you know, the, the, these 400 people or 500 billionaires in the United States would still have a billion dollars, more money that they could spend or their children could spend in their lifetimes so anyway that's just a a a thought piece there somebody's got to say it and i think that's the the the, that's the key intervention around the 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 runaway wealth cycle bill o'reilly on the other hand is going to come back to you and say that uh all of the job creators and innovators will no longer have any reason to uh, job create and innovate because they can't um, uh, enjoy the fruits of their labors. Well, there, there is, you know, first of all, we're all job creators. I mean, people at all different levels are contributing to the economy in a way that contributes to jobs. There's a little bit of this mythology that if you have a huge mass of wealth, that that makes you a job creator because you're investing capital. That isn't necessarily true at all. In fact, a lot of capital at this level, at the very high levels, is invested in speculative uh, gambling ventures uh, that are not in the real economy and that actually could potentially hurt the real economy. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is, you know, if you think about, well, what 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 does it take for people to have an incentive? Uh, you know, a billion dollars <laughs> after after a billion dollars. You're just kind of keeping score. You know, it's it's all very abstract. A uh, billion dollars. If that's not a if if if, if you tell me, Getch, oh, I can't have two billion. 
So I'm going to just stop playing. You know, I'm not going to stop being interested in in being engaged in the economy. I don't think that's the case. I mean, we know that's not the case. You're listening to Occupy Radio from KWVA Eugene and the Pacifica Radio Network, streaming at kwvaradio.org and podcasting at occupyradio.org. Scott Santons writes about basic, universal basic income, as well as uh, being a basic income advocate and a moderator for the basic income subreddit. And Scott is going to start the second half of this week's show by explaining just what is basic income. We're looking at a lot of technological unemployment across uh, a wide variety of jobs, um, and this is also related to the uh, Oxford study that showed about uh, the estimated that 40%, 47% of jobs can be eliminated uh, within the next 20 years. So, um, you know, a lot of people are worried about what effect this is going to have uh, on our society and uh, on our economy, especially since right now the way the system works is that we need an income in order to buy the products that we're producing so if robots and machines hardware and software are producing the stuff instead of humans then humans aren't getting an income and then humans can't spend their income on what the robots are producing so the entire system stands to break down unless we are able to separate uh, income from work. Basic income is uh, is money given from the government uh, to its citizens uh, on an individual basis uh, with no means testing, no strings attached whatsoever, and it's sufficient to cover the most basic needs. So the, mo- the most basic needs being like food, shelter, clothing, electricity, you know, these kind of things. So we just want to make sure that people have enough money to cover this. Uh, in the, the, the most popular uh, number that's being used and what I suggest to start with is uh, $1,000 a month. And that's $1,000 a month per adult. And I also suggest a child allowance or partial basic income of $300 a month uh, per child. Because this will allow uh, every household size from one person per household to, you know, six, seven, eight people per household. Uh, Everyone will be prevented from living uh, in poverty. When everybody gets it and when you suddenly break the link between uh, income and uh, work, then you you change the game of the the way it's run right now where you have to live near expensive cities uh, in order to have a job. Uh, cities, uh, higher cost of living areas are areas of high opportunity. So that's where, uh, you know, you're paying more to live there. But as soon as you don't have to live there anymore, as long as you, as as long as you can move anywhere and live anywhere, then you don't require the jobs and you can actually move to places that are cheaper. So Rivera, did you hear that Finland has just, uh, enacted or, um, promised to enact a universal basic income? 
I did hear that rumor, and it's really amazing to look back on Occupy Radio at the things that were theoretical when we were just recording the interviews, these philosophies and concepts, and have them actually be put into place and implemented. And in the like practicum experimental phase right now is very exciting. I mean, can't wait for the U.S. to do it, but I think we might have to wait a little bit. I hope we don't have to wait too long. Imagine how much easier it would be to be a podcaster. But uh, let's hear what uh, Scott Santons has to say about how we can pay for it. So people look at that and go, well, that's that's way too expensive. Uh, it's crazy. But the thing is, is that we actually can eliminate uh, a bunch of our current programs. So when you do that, then you're able to drop around a trillion dollars uh, from that price tag or more, depending on what you chop. To get back to your question about uh, the banking system, the banking is another great idea. And I, I consider this part of the Alaska model of funding a basic income. So uh, for listeners who don't know uh, about the Alaska dividend, uh, since 1982, every, every resident uh, of Alaska has received a check from the Alaskan government um, every year as their share of the, uh, the dividend revenue from the oil uh being drilled on state land. So the state of Alaska uh, charges oil companies, say, 25% and says, hey, we get a cut. You know, this is our land, so we get a cut of your revenue. They invest that into a giant fund called the Alaska Permanent Fund. And then that fund creates revenue, creates dividends, and every resident of Alaska gets these dividends. So when I say the Alaska model, it's a way of um, using – commonly owned resources uh, in order to provide income unconditionally to the people who are considered as co-owners. So a public banking system is the same kind of thing where, you know, why don't we, you know, what only one state does it right now. Why don't we have more states that have a state bank and uh, instead of, say, using the revenue from interest to pay for uh, state programs, it can be like Alaska, where they actually pay a dividend to everybody. So there was that that little subtle sound in the background, like maybe dogs were in pain or something. But I think, I don't remember for sure, but I think uh, there was some construction going on in the background there behind Scott during that clip. Well, we have had birds, we've had dogs, yeah. children, crickets. everything. Sh- crickets, right? Crickets yeah. from my house show up on Occupy Radio as unexpected guests, bringing in a touch of reality, sirens and police uh, whistles going off. Uh-huh. Well, you know, that was a really intriguing concept, the universal basic income. Uh, let's hope it's coming to the U.S. You know, we're going to talk next with uh, Richard Wolf, who is the host of the radio podcast Economic Update, along with a long list of credentials as an economist. He, uh, con- he told us about his number one solution for addressing the economic woes of the United States. And it's not something you're going to hear our presidential candidates talking very much about. And so if you wanted to change this, here's the punchline. It's the punchline of everything I do. (laughs) You've got to change the system. You can't anymore be diddling around the edges, you know, adjusting this law, shifting that regulation. We're beyond that. It's a little bit like going to the doctor and being told, well, you have a fairly serious disease. We can deal with it, 
But adding another Band-Aid isn't going to solve it. Taking another aspirin isn't going to solve it. It's a, it's a more systemic problem. So let me give you the simplest solution I know, but it's also the one that, that promises to work. If we changed how enterprises were organized, they would no longer be competitively driven to increase profits. Uh, and the basic way I explain this is to say, suppose we brought democracy to enterprises. If you think about it, the democracy we as a nation claim we favor it has the basic idea, if you are affected by a decision, well, then you have the inalienable right to participate in it. Since the president or the mayor or the governor of where we live makes decisions that impact us and ditto the legislature, we are given the right to vote, to decide who these people are, to remove those we do not like and substitute those we prefer. Okay, that at least is some influence over the decisions we have to live with. But when we cross the threshold into our jobs, in the office, the store, the factory, we leave democracy behind. We go to a place where we are told, go over there, stand there or sit there, work with this machine or that computer or that typewriter, and work with these raw materials to produce that output. And at the end of the day, when you've used up your brains and muscles for the day's work, you go home and you leave behind the fruits of your labor because they belong instantaneously to somebody else. That somebody else is the corporation, the board of directors, usually 15 or 20 people, and the major shareholders of the company, the owners, usually another 15 or 20 people. Together, those 30 folks make all the decisions. They decide what you produce. They decide how you produce. They decide where you produce in the United States or if they prefer some other country. And then they decide what to do with the profits you produce, but they get to decide. You have to live with the results of those decisions, including the end of your job. But you have absolutely no influence over them whatsoever. So the people who run the enterprise all they care about is making the money to keep this wonderful system going. So they maximize profits because that's good for them. They are the ones who get the biggest chunk of those profits, and they use them to keep themselves in this powerful position at the peak of the system. For the rest of us, we hope we can get by. We hope we can get a little better along the way. But we are basically the undemocratic masses. It's always been an amazement to me that a country that talks about democracy as much as we do should have long ago decided that democracy does not apply, is not necessary, should be kept out of the workplace. And when you think of it, it's doubly amazing because the workplace is the place where most adults spend most of their lives, five out of seven days a week, the best hours of the day, you're at work. If democracy means something to you, it ought to have been applied to where most of us spend most of our lives first, as opposed to being the one place in our society where we declare it doesn't apply. Last point. Suppose a factory, just as an example, 
We're run democratically by the workers in it. Okay, here's the situation. We could move the factory to China, and we would make a higher profit in this business. But we would lose our jobs, and our families would suddenly be without a major breadwinner. And our communities would be without the tax revenues because we can't pay taxes if we have no jobs. So if we're going to sit here and democratically make a decision, are we going to decide to improve our profits by destroying our jobs, families and communities and closing the factory? The answer is an unambiguous no way. That's not going to happen. If we have to come up with new profits, we'll find another way because that one is not acceptable to us. And I could give you a hundred other examples that the outcome, what would happen in our society, would have been since the 1970s very different and would be now very different if we just democratized the enterprises because of the resulting different pattern of decisions that enterprises would make if all the workers had one person, one vote, rather than giving a tiny minority at the top all of the power. So, Rivera, have you seen the movie Zoolander? A long time ago. Okay. Well, I, I would, there's a, a line that I think really applies to Richard Wolf, and that is, that Richard Wolf, he's so hot right now. <laughs> Everybody wants to hear from Richard Wolf. Well, I think his message is important. It's timeless and it's uh, timely. Definitely the case. Yeah, I'm glad he came out. You know, listening to his show every week on uh, on the Occupy the Media, it's it's. I, I imagine that's what it would be like sitting in his class. You know, he's the way he delivers his the way that he interacts with his listeners, um, really uh, educational. As you know, it it fills a lot of different needs, and I think a lot of people feel that that need and that he is filling it. And the last clip that we have that you picked out, Rivera, is an excellent choice. I think probably one of the most fun shows we did this year and maybe the time during the time that we've been doing the show together. That's right. We've got Mike Bonanno of the Yes Men on for our April Fool's Day show, April 1st this year, in a trick stunt that I think confused a lot of our listeners at first. We got some interesting comments on Facebook. That's true. I did hear from people about midway through listening through that week's show who were a little bit appalled and shocked at us until about the 15-minute marker on the show. And then... They all started smiling. We are here talking with Jeff Walburn from Uber, which is a uh, online web platform for connecting drivers and riders. And he's going to discuss with us today their new pilot program, which is very exciting, very intriguing, and something all activists should keep their eye on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're actually really grateful for uh, you know for bringing me on. I know people like me are probably not your typical guests, but we actually do have a project coming out of Uber pilot programs that we think is of particular interest to your listeners and basically anyone who cares about the democratic process. Um, it's called Uber Rally, and it's basically an offshoot 
of a project that we actually, because we're on, we're on Occupy Radio, it's actually perfectly suited to that because when Occupy was happening in 2011, we at Uber were watching it and we're very intrigued by the potential it represented. Um, and so we began working at the time on this program that we're now going to roll out, which is a sort of human version of the car sharing service we currently run, where we basically want to connect people who really care about issues with people who have the time to demonstrate about them. So the idea is that users of the app, who we call patrons, can place a bid for uh, someone to go protest in their stead at a particular protest demonstration or rally or live event of any sort. So the idea is, um, you know, not everyone has, has time all the time to go out and camp in a park or party all night or whatever. <laughs> Some people have to keep their jobs. Um, but, but we still care. Uh, there's a lot of people who still care about the issues that, that, uh, that Occupy protesters were bringing up and discussing. Um, but we just think that part of the reason Occupy never really, really made any really solid change is that it never made a profit. And we at Uber and now our sister project, Uber Rally, we believe that protest and profit can, can go hand in hand or fist in fist. Um, yeah, so, so we just so think just it's a win-win for really everyone. Really clear, so people could sign up to be Uber Rally uh, protesters, and then they could, you know, hire themselves out to go show up at protests and demonstrations. And um, does it matter their political persuasion? I mean, could you know right-wing conservative uh, protesters show up at liberal events, and do they have to have a nonviolence commitment? How does that work? It- it is true that one of the things we like about it is that it's politically neutral. Um, you can pay a protester to attend a rally or live event in your stead, and they bid, uh, you know, they would bid on, on whatever the event is. It's your choice. It's your issue. Um, but we do think that the democratic process part of that is being out in the streets and voicing your opinions as part of the First Amendment. But we also realize that sometimes you need to have brunch and not everyone can go out in the streets. You know, it can be cold or sometimes it can be too hot and you get sweaty and you're maybe crammed up with a bunch of other people you don't know in the streets. And if if you're so inclined to do that, but also then you can bid and maybe this is what you'd be doing anyway. And I think like a lot of the audience of this radio show, they're probably mostly unemployed kids who are in debt from poor educational choices (laughs) And who are probably restless and wayward and maybe wanting to protest anything, really. And this is a way to give them a reason to protest. So we, we could hopefully see a spike in protest activity as a result of launching Uber Rally. But uh, will, this, will this actually move things forward or will this just create a cottage industry for protesters? Well, I mean... <laughs> You may not realize it already, but if you ever see images or like on TV, like we 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 watch a a lot of TV coverage of protests, and the truth is, a good percentage of all the people in those crowds are sponsored by various entities already. We're just making it more transparent and more able for anyone to do that. 
So, so I, I just, Jeff, I'm very curious, you know, we have a problem in this country of income inequality. It's one of the issues of the Occupy movement. Now, with mm-hmm. Uber Ali, do we have a concern at all that, you know, the Koch brothers, for example, could outbid the liberal and certainly the radical left in terms of hiring protesters to show up at mass demonstrations? I mean, let's face it. The Koch brothers have enough money to hire and pay really decent bids to uh, young Republicans to show up at their events. Uh, do we have a concern that that might actually, you know, take away from what you see as a democratic aspect of the Uber Rally program? It's not such a concern. It's more that that's sort of our inspiration. The Occupy movement was made up of mostly people who just chose to be there, whereas Something like the Tea Party was largely astroturfed and sort of generated by these moneyed interests. And it's more seeing that their model is much more sustainable for the long term and for profit to make it sustainable needs to be profitable. So it's more just that what the Koch brothers and others have been doing with that model is that we're directly inspired by it. And we just think that sort of what's what the Occupy movement and what the left protesters need to also recognize is that um, you can that you can have have it both ways. You can get your word out. You can be there in the streets, and but you can also have you can make money off of it, and you can have a reason to be there. And does Uber does Uber see a, a profit margin in this? We take like like as with the car service, we do we do take a, a certain cut, and it. And it varies depending on, it's sort of based on the free market system where, where it varies based on the bidding system. So uh, an event, say, that is heavily attended already, the rate for hiring a surrogate protester for yourself would be lower, um, whereas if you want to send someone to a very um, less popular protest, then that might be a little more expensive. So the climate but, march, the climate march. If you were involved in the climate march back in September, that would have been pennies. But if you're going to go in, say, uh, a few years back yeah, for Occupy NATO, when the uh, Chicago cops were coming in, swinging their their clubs and smacking people over the head and arresting people, I imagine that would cost quite a bit more. But also, I wonder in in Uber Rally, is there any way to handle the cost of an arrest? Do, yeah, and and in fact, that is built into the the, uh, the structure, and 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 all the patrons have to take into account the risks involved with certain events. In that, events that are more risky can become more expensive because a certain premium is paid for every physical injury, for example. Um, Do you think that's going to tend to dilute uh, the nature of protests so that we already have a problem in the United States of, you know, purely symbolic demonstrations that really, you know, have police escorts, they get permits. um, And, you know, at this point, we have a a little bit of problem is that there's fewer and fewer acts of real civil disobedience that go along with symbolic protests and demonstrations. Do you think the cost effect is going to influence that? Um, I think the bringing money into it, um, as it's been brought into every other aspect of the democratic process, I think is not only natural and inevitable, but I think it will also create a certain intensity to them. Um, if you incentivize the surrogate protester to, you know, if, if, if you make it so that 
he or she is rewarded with a certain financial premium based on how intensely they get the message out or how intensely they behave at a protest, then if you're actually bolstering the, the whole protest in general. And there are ways that the patron can insert their particular message onto, say, a, a poster that, that their surrogate is carrying, or, or you, can, you can even write your own chant or whatever to kind of give them your own message through your voice, but without you actually having to be out in public. So Uber, Uber is, is part of the, the technorati, I guess. You know, you, you guys, you guys are, are technically savvy. So I imagine uh, I'm having a tough time understanding how somebody who's sitting at home and bidding on protesters is going to be able to verify the enthusiasm of the protester who they're paying for. Is there, is, I mean, you know, once they're out in the streets, they're kind of on their own, so you don't... Oh. You, do you have any way to, to do oversight on these protesters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, every, every protester has uh, an on an on-their-person uh, a live-streamed headset that videotapes their entire experience. So if you, if you want, you could literally watch from your couch and be part of it. It's like you're there. Um, or you could play it back later when you're done just to make sure you got your money's worth or just to see what it was like on the ground. So it really is like you're there, except you can still make time for the things that matter or, you know, um, pick up the kids from school or, or hang out with friends or catch up on that Netflix show. So the, the revolution will be televised. Televised and monetized. <laughs> and if you have ever listened to Occupy Radio in the past or been involved with the Occupy movement, you will know that this is our April Fool's Day Occupy Radio show. Welcome to the show, Mike Banana. We're so glad to have you on and so glad to actually feature a Yes Men stunt on Occupy Radio. The hardest thing about that show, Getch, was keeping a straight face while we recorded it. Definitely the case. You know, uh a little bit of uh, humor helps the political seriousness and the tr- bitterness of truth and the medicine of the shows that we do go down a little bit smoother. And that's one of the joys of getting to do this show with you over the years, Getch, is getting to laugh and getting to want to cry and getting to look truth straight in the eye. Thanks this week to all of the many guests we've had over the four-year run of Occupy Radio, and especially during the last two with you, Rivera. This has been a delight and a pleasure from the start to the finish, and we're not over yet. Occupy Radio is produced through KWVA 88.1 FM on the campus of the University of Oregon, we are syndicated on the Pacifica Radio Network, and thank you so much, Getch, for all of the fun that we've had. <laughs> you betcha. And uh, occupiers, even once Occupy Radio is done, we still want to hear from you. We're still out there, and we can still reflect back at you. So you can reach us by dropping a line at Occupy Radio 23 on Twitter and Gmail. That's Occupy Radio 23 on gmail.com. We're Occupy Radio on Stitcher and iTunes. You can find us on Facebook on the Occupy Radio group page and we are occupyradio.org 
for Occupy Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. Did you know that the circumference of the Earth is 24,902 miles? Furthermore, the Earth travels 93 million miles as it orbits around the Sun. That means, listeners, that you can sit on your couch listening to all of our old episodes of Occupy Radio, eating bonbons, and still travel 1,957,875 miles by the time we talk to you next week. <laughs>